Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 41. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. This episode, I am talking to the man who recorded and mixed the first ever record from Metallica, Kill Em All. But before we jump into that, I would just like to ask you, please, if you could leave a five-star rating and a nice little review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Speak and Destroy, it is a huge help in terms of visibility and people discovering this show and hearing what we've been doing. So if you've been enjoying it, please do so. We've also got a Facebook page with a nice little Facebook community we've been building in there, a little Facebook group. Uh, you can follow Speaking Destroy on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, there's a YouTube channel where I've got some cool little playlists and deep cuts and originals of songs Metallica has covered and other bands covering Metallica and some other fun things I've curated there. So without any further ado, let's get into this interview. We are talking about the making of Kill Em All. This is Speak and Destroy. about your background and upbringing and uh you know how you got into music and how that led to you getting your start as an engineer mm. well uh, let's see if i can uh summarize it as quickly as possible but yeah i mean um i started out as a drummer uh back in grammar school and i studied uh drumming all through grammar school and then i um i went to college and when I got into the college, I uh, studied classical percussion instruments and continued um, my drumming. But at the same time, uh, once I got into that school, I discovered that there was a recording studio there and mm. that they had one of the first um, sound recording technology programs in the country at the time. And it... Uh, I got invited down to uh, play on a session, and I just fell in love with uh, the idea of um, working in the in the sound booth and, and recording. And I, if, after my freshman year at the college, changed my major, and sort of it all went on from there. What sort of music were you listening to back then? <laughs> yeah, um, well... I was really listening to like, you know, Chicago, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chick Corea, um, Ma Vishnu Orchestra. I mean, those were mm. my kind of so, my so very interests. musical, uh, progressive kind of complicated right. stuff <laughs> with right. great melodies. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and great drummers and great guitarists and all those bands. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's what I was listening to and kind of aspiring to at the time. How did you come to work with the Rods? Well, uh, my older brother uh, was a guitarist, and he actually played in a band with the drummer from the Rods, Carl Kennedy. And I got to know Carl since I was a drummer and he was a drummer. We kind of became um, friends in a way. And when he 
uh, when Carl discovered I was at a college and the college had a recording studio and mm -hmm. his band, which was the Rods, was looking for someplace to do their first record, I invited them up and their record actually became my senior year recording project. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was in high school, the guitar player for my band at the time did a music video for us as his senior year audiovisual project. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's nice how that works out. Yes, yes. So they got a, you know, it didn't cost them much of anything, and I got a chance to <clears throat> really learn on the job, so to speak. And that record actually was picked up. It was originally released by. Um, Primal Records, which was their record label, I think, at the time, and it was that was picked up by Arista and um, released through through that label. And that's a big deal. I mean, Arista was a a big label for a long time. At the time, yeah, it was a pretty big deal. Yes. How did that change things in terms of you know kind of getting your start, at, you know, at doing this as a career? Um, it really didn't. I graduated from uh, from college. I worked. Uh, in the audio um, media department at the college for a year after I graduated. I came home to my upstate New York town of Elmira um, and uh, worked uh, as a live sound engineer at the Performing Arts Center there for about a year. Uh, and then I got invited to um, be the chief engineer at a studio in Rochester called Music America. Well, at the time it was called Barrett Alley, but um, we changed it to Music America Recording after a couple of years. And I moved to Rochester, and that's how I sort of got involved with Metallica. Yeah, it's interesting to think, you know, you were a couple of degrees of separation away from Clive Davis, and yet yeah. it's still, <laughs> uh, you know, worlds away, the way that uh, the music business works, especially back then. So how did you uh, come into contact with Johnny Z? Was he the introduction to Metallica? Uh, he was. He had um, a band had come to our to the studio. I was the chief engineer at the studio. A band had come to the studio called Man of War. Yes. <laughs> and um, they didn't work with me. They worked with another engineer. Um, and I guess there was. I wasn't aware of this at the time, but I guess there was some kind of friction between the Rods, who I had recorded, and Man of War. I don't really know. But they didn't much like me, and um, when it came time for Johnny to find a studio to record Metallica in, they said, well, you really should come to Music America, but whatever you do, don't work with this guy named Chris Bubach. <laughs> and Johnny couldn't remember anyone else's name at the studio but mine, so when he got there, he asked for me. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's what they call an own goal these days. Yeah. <laughs> A self own. That's great. So you know, so so Johnny comes and he asks for you, and and um, what is what does he tell you exactly about this band he has? Because well, that's you know. the thing. I mean, I, I wasn't listening. You know, I had done um, you know a few records for the Rod, so I I knew about heavy metal music, but I really wasn't listening to it. I'd never heard of the band. I didn't know anything about him. He said he was bringing. Uh, a band that he had just signed from San Francisco, and um, the guys were great. They they came into the studio, but my God, I I guess they must have just come off the road. But uh, it was it was a mess at first. I mean, <laughs> you know, guitar strings, no guitar strings, uh, bass pickups didn't work, amplifier speakers are blown, the drum heads are beat to hell. I mean, it was a real 
mess. And we all kind of sat around and said, what do we need to do here? And, and the guys in the band and myself and the producer at the time, this guy, Paul Curcio, mm-hmm. um, you know, we suggested that we needed to get some things for the recording before we could start. So we approached Johnny and said, we need a budget for da, 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 da. And he said, okay. And um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of money. It was guitar strings and drum heads, but and getting the amplifier speakers fixed. But it made a huge difference because when they came into the studio, it was their, all their equipment was and pretty much disarray, and we needed to spend, you know, it's their first recording, I think it was the first time they'd been in a studio as a band, they're here from, I think they came from San Francisco, they're in, mm-hmm. I mean, it was tough on them, but they really uh, seemed to rise to the occasion. Yeah, they, uh, you know, drove across the country in a U-Haul, and uh, <laughs> and then were uh, put up in Anthrax's rehearsal room where they were uh, rehearsing oh, the songs for that record, yeah. So was your first meeting with them was actually in the studio then? Correct. What what do you recollect about kind of your your first impression of each of the four guys? You know, to tell you the truth, I I really don't remember <clears throat> that much about it, other than they all seemed like really nice guys. Um, I noticed off the top that it seemed like the drummer Lars was um, going to be involved with the production aspects mm-hmm. of the record um, and just alongside him where behind him would be the guitarist yeah james was the original guitarist and kurt came in um had just playing lead guitar he didn't really hadn't been with the band for very long so um but they're all nice guys very nervous um they seemed really um you know interested in 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 this whole thing and uh I had a pretty good feeling about about the whole thing, other than I didn't know anything about their music. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't know what kind of sound they were looking for. Um, but luckily, um, after talking with Lars and James a little bit, I mean, believe it or not, some of our musical influences um, were similar. I mean, oh, I definitely believe it. Yeah, yeah, they were looking for a a, a good um, representation of their of their sound as best we could in the studio, and we we're under a lot of I mean, the, the equipment wasn't very good. We had a very small selection of microphones. I mean, it, you know, it, it was, uh, it wasn't the, I wouldn't call it a state of the art studio. I, I think we were 16 track, if I'm not mistaken, it was an MCI console and an MCI um, tape machine. So it wasn't, you know, what you would be considered at the top of the line, but it, you know, it all worked. And you were also had pretty considerable time constraint, right? Like, what was the what was the total time that they were actually in there tracking you? Think? I mean, you know, it seems like they were there for quite a period of time when I look back at it. But I just saw something online, and it looks like they were there maybe a month. Or yeah, less. it probably feels like a year at that, especially yeah. <laughs> at that time in your life, and when you're living and breathing that. And right. yeah, and, and part of it, you know, and I would say not to, uh, you know, like you're obviously a very uh, nice and modest person. Um, I wouldn't tell yourself too short on not being that familiar with them because they weren't outside of a very niche, extremely right. underground scene. They weren't really known. And, and as far as trying to figure out what they were going for with their record, I mean, they were unbeknownst to everyone involved, I'm sure, uh, right. essentially inventing a new style of music right. <laughs> on that record. Yeah. Did you, uh, get an opportunity at any point early in that process to hear the demo they had made, No Life to Leather? No, I, I hadn't heard really anything. Um, and the first thing I heard was what we brought up through the mics. Oh, that's all, that's probably good, yeah, in yeah. terms of <laughs> approaching it fresh and everything. Now, this yeah. is this might be a little a bit too much 
minutia, so don't feel bad if you don't <laughs> remember. But, um, you know, there's been some discussion that, uh, you know, as you noted, Kirk was, was very new to the band. And Dave Mustaine, who had played on all the demos and been on the band before that and was a big songwriter, you know, Kirk came in as the lead player. And there was some discussion about whether he should be playing Mustaine's leads note for note, whether he should write all new leads. And my understanding from what I've read since then uh, is that it ended up being kind of an amalgamation of the two, that it was sort of the solos kind of started with the same phrasing that the Mustaine versions had, and then Kirk did his own thing past that. Do you remember yeah. any of that kind of conversation? I, from what yeah. I've read, it was Johnny Z that was really kind of advocating more for the police do what was on the demo from the other guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I didn't hear the demo, so I didn't really know. And no, I don't know. I don't remember uh, any specific conversation about that. All I do remember is, and this is not any um, knock against Kirk, but uh, since he didn't really, he didn't have a lot of time to learn those parts, mm -hmm. there was a lot of punching in on his guitar solos. I mean, you know, Every four to eight bars, we'd be dropping in um, to get those solos right. So I don't know, uh, w you know, what the story was, but it, it took a lot of um, meticulous, uh, and then even, you know, sometimes adding uh, uh, different tracks of different solos together. Um, so, you know, it was pretty intricate uh, time for me i i um, and that's with tape that's not pro tools <laughs> yeah, no, there was no blending tape. solos there was together tools, yeah 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 um all the edits we did in the mixing was on tape um wow. we didn't do any uh, multi-track editing uh, as far as splicing the tape but when we when we got to mixing we did a lot of uh of editing of different takes together and that type of thing yeah and to kirk's credit as, as you noted it's you know he was he was new and and uh it sounds like there was some pressure externally about even what exactly he was supposed to be doing. So yeah, I mean, we didn't, I didn't feel that in the studio. I think uh, they were really good. I think Johnny was good with whatever um, issues he might have with that. He either discussed them with Paul Curcio, who was quote unquote the producer, or he discussed it with the band, and 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 they didn't really get me that involved with it. So I kind of just you know was focused on making sure we got stuff to tape and and just moving forward and how, how was the workload distributed between you and paul um because i i feel like your name comes up more often frankly in terms of uh you know being in the room uh but you know how did that for people who don't really understand how that works you know you're the engineer he's the producer but how did that boil down in this well, specific situation yeah, I don't really want to say much about that. I mean, he uh, was a great guy. I don't. I think he's pa he passed away a while back. Oh, that's um, sad he to was hear. A great, yeah, he's a great guy. Um, I don't think he knew much about heavy metal music, and mm. um, uh, oh, as I really didn't know that much about it either. But um, yeah, I mean, he sort of, uh, you know, um, came in and would listen to things uh, after we had spent a, a pretty good amount of time uh, getting sounds and, and getting stuff down to tape. Um, but he was definitely involved. But I think from an older type of, you know, old school producer, as opposed to what you would consider a producer today who might be right. a songwriter, he might be an, a, a musician, he might be several different things and perform several different functions during a project. Paul was sort of like kind of oversaw what was going on and made sure 
we ate our dinner and we showed up for the sessions and, you know, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, the old school producer of, of vibe and performances right. and right. arrangements maybe. Or, yeah, like you said, these days, uh, you know, even in rock, a lot of times the producer is – is uh, you know he's the engineer, he's the mixer, he's right. <laughs> he's playing guitar. He, yeah, exactly. who knows? Exactly. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about the what sort of gear they had and everything, and, and you got into that a little bit already. Yeah, I imagine it was pretty road weathered at that point because they were. Yeah, I think they had just come off the road, which is great. Took a while um, way to go, but and I wasn't really used to dealing with that. So when I said, okay, this is what we need to do to get where, to where we need to be. And we need drum heads, we need guitar strings, we the speakers on the bass amp were blown. We, I said, I, you know, this is not, um, you know, uh, Talus or, or, or uh, one of those bands where the, the, the bass is supposed to be all distorted. We'd like to have mm -hmm. a really good bass sound on this if we could. So they all agreed. It just took us a little while to get that all sort of going yeah. at first. And you mentioned uh, Lars's role, uh, you know, on the production side you know right there from the very first album he was already a much bigger part of the creative process and the behind the scenes uh activity than you know a lot of drummers uh that are oh, yeah. you know a lot, a lot of times with rock records especially the drummer's there for a few days <laughs> cutting the drums early in the process and then yeah. that's kind of it no he was i mean he was he was involved with every aspect of everything including helping me actually physically mix the record, um, wow. I, we, we had no automation. So um, to turn certain, you know, we had multiple uh, parts on on tracks because I think it was, like I said, I think it was only 16 tracks. So we might have guitar lead on um, a TomTom -tom track or something that wasn't playing at the time. So we he physically had to turn on and off um, a lot of the TomTom -tom tracks that we had recorded where there wasn't anything going on there. Um, and other things like that. So he was very, very involved. And, you know, he was the only one that knew where those things needed to really come on and go off because he played the parts. So he, yeah. he was sitting behind the desk with me almost the whole time we were actually physically mixing the tracks. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, in later years, I'd be curious if this was the case during Kill em All, so he's actually sitting in the, in the room with Kirk um, as he's doing his leads, and they're kind of talking through the leads and what they're going for, and Lars is giving them ideas and stuff like that. I always thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, I don't remember if he was in the room or not, to tell you the truth, when we did the, the leads. I remember Johnny Z being in there. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, which, which you know, yeah, especially for rock and metal bands, and a lot of them following the template that Metallica set down, the, the last thing you want in the room is... Uh, the the label guy, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which exactly. Uh, which I would imagine is something that Metallica uh, shut down after Kill 'Em All. Probably so. What do you remember about tracking the vocals? Uh, and and I realize you you weren't familiar with the demo, which again I think was probably uh, for the better for everyone in terms of getting what you captured. Uh, but his James's uh, vocal style had was noticeably different by the time they did Kill 'Em All uh, from prior to that. Was that something he worked on there or did he kind of come in already knowing what he wanted uh, to do? I think he came in already knowing what he wanted to do because um, I don't remember a tremendous amount of discussion in the studio about this, that, or the other thing. Um, so, yeah, I think he must have come in with an idea of what he wanted. Um, we recorded 
if I can remember correctly, recorded most of his vocals uh, in the live uh, studio. Oh, wow. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't that big, big a studio where we did the, yeah. So, so to explain to you real quickly, cause I think it's, it's maybe important. Please. The recording, the recording studio itself was in the basement of a social club in Rochester, New York, in a, an abandoned closed social club in the basement <laughs> of it. And it, it was actually the bowling alley part of the social club, which they had, we had gutted and built this studio in. Wow. And there was a, a, a live room and a, a small overdub booth. And that was it as far as the recording area. But we could access the social club from the live room of the recording studio. And the social club had two very big ballrooms with very high ceilings, wood floors, plaster walls, really high ceilings. And that's where we set the drums up in one of those ballrooms. And we ran... Um, audio snakes from the, where the drums are set up down into the uh, control room. Wow. And um, you don't get that sense from the recording because I'm afraid the four tracks of room ambience that I meticulously recorded to capture what I thought was one of my, was one of the better drum sounds I had heard in a while, which wasn't anything to do with me or really Lars. It was just that we had these mics out in a room that sounded really, really good. I was going to say and, that ballroom sounds awesome. That's like That sounds like, you know, Led Zeppelin drums. Oh, it, it, it was <laughs> yeah. a great room. But by the time we got to mix it, I had to slowly and, and really to my discouragement, I guess, or uh, was I had to erase those tracks. So by the time, because we needed them for overdubs and we needed them for this, that, and oh, everything. Right. So by the time yeah. we came to mix... There were no tracks, and at that time, I didn't un I didn't understand the technique of feeding uh, the tracks back out into a live room like they do today, or or I did subsequently years later in my recording career. Um, so we just lost them; they were gone, and um, it, uh, it it really changed the drum sound. I think. In fact, I remember Johnny Z coming into the control room, and 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 when the room mics were turned off he said it sounded like i had mic'd up a disco drum because <laughs> <laughs> it was all just the close all the close mics no overheads no room ambience but once you brought the ambience in it sounded like a really nice um pretty big drum sound you know and you mentioned the technique that you would learn later about sort of feeding the ambience the room noise back in right. there but but really i mean it sounds like the the biggest issue was a, a technical limitation that was pretty common of the day, and especially for a, a low-budget rock record in Rochester, New York. Wow. So yeah, this is this is this is the place for these kind of details. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're in it. I love it. Of course, I have to ask you about uh, Anesthesia Pulling Teeth, the Cliff Burton bass solo that's on the record. Aside from the fact that it's an unusual song choice within really any genre, you know, for there to be a, a bass instrumental. And it's so, you know, iconic. It's so readily identified with Cliff's persona, his energy. Only in recent years has Robert Trujillo, the current bass player, actually even started performing that live. It was kind of like, right. you know, sacred and, and untouched for a long time. I'm sure there's some demystifying, which is totally fine, because that's also what we do here. But, um, I'm very curious for whatever you remember about um, tracking that and even sort of the conversation of it of, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do this song. That's just a bass solo. <laughs> I 
like that. It's, well, it had to be weird. It, it, it was in one way, and it was not in another. I had worked with um, a Buffalo band called Talus, mm-hmm. uh, and the bass player was this guy, Billy Sheen. Oh, wow, okay. And, yeah, I knew I knew he, the name Talus, and I couldn't connect yeah. it there. Yeah, from Mr. Big and David right. Roth, and yeah, sure. Exactly. His original band was, was Talus, and, and they were out of Buffalo, and he had come into the studio, the band had come into the studio. So I I had been familiar with bass solos, and, you know, he had a very elaborate um, bass setup with, you know, I think we used like seven or eight mics and all kinds of direct boxes and all kinds of weird things. So when it came time for this, although I wasn't um, prepared exactly for what was going to happen, um, I kind of got an idea, you know, I had experienced something like that before, so I wasn't too um uh surprised by it i guess is the word yeah that's a nice bit of serendipity uh you know billy sheehan you know being right one of the most legendary rock bassists (laughs) that yeah to have had that experience before cliff burton walks in your door but one more thing i want to say about cliff his bass his bass pickups did not work (laughs) (laughs) or at least one of them was 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 not working when we first came in because when we first plugged him in i was like what I mean, there was, I couldn't get any low end. I couldn't get anything out of the base. And we started to look at what the problems could be. We found blown speakers. We found as the pickups were not working properly. So we had to get the base fixed and working properly before we could do any recording. And that was uh, Rickenbacker? Yes. Do you remember sort of, and again, don't don't feel bad because I know it was a long time ago, but um, do you remember, you know, what your impression was of, of Cliff with the, the bell bottoms and the, you know, he was such a unique, uh, non-conforming sort of individual, even within a group of unique individuals. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I have to say I'm sorry, but I, I don't, I mean, they all, I don't remember anything that unique about uh, Cliff as far as being different from the other guys. Um, you know, he seemed very excited to be in the studio and interested about doing the recording and very, involved with making sure, you know, he was playing the parts correctly. I don't remember, remember either the Lars interacted with those pretty new heads on. I mean, I was constantly... And he's the most, like, the most talkative. I think all three right. of those other guys were pretty shy, especially I back mean, then. We played, we played tennis with him while he was there. You know, his father was a tennis pro, and, yeah. and uh, I I was very interested in this, so I some tennis while I was there. But that's who I... And, and, and then, of course, James after that. I mean, that seemed to be um, the way things flowed. And, uh, yeah... Yeah, it, 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 I've seen interviews where Lars has said, uh, you know, he was a highly ranked tennis this and that in Denmark, and then they moved to California, and he's like, I wasn't even in the top ten on my block. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's so cool. I mean, that had to be awesome. And uh, yeah, yeah. so the mixing uh, stage, which you've talked about a little bit already, so that was was really you and Lars, and um, and I imagine Johnny Z probably barged in there a few times <laughs> yeah, he, he barged in at the end uh, of the of the mixes to hear them and make sure um they were what everyone wanted but yeah lars and and james were around for the most of it lars being the one that was you know pretty hands-on this is skipping ahead just a little bit but uh the following year uh they put out whiplash as a 12-inch single and there's a remix on there, the special Neckbrick remix. Um, do you remember anything about that or, or it being I different? Or I don't think I 
I mean, I'll tell you the truth, I don't think I did that remix. I almost wonder if it's actually even remixed. Yeah. <laughs> or if that's just something they slapped on there. I, I don't know. I mean, it certainly wasn't um, done at, the, at our studio or with me involved that I remember unless we did it. Um, yeah, unless we did it during the actual sessions. And yeah, that's know. what I was going to say. Maybe it was uh, an alternate mix that was that yeah, they just had I think, from. I, I think that's probably it. Because you're credited with it, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So the record comes out, you know, obviously that, you know, the band leaves the studio and, and as legend has it, Johnny Z takes out a second mortgage to finance, printing up 1,500 copies. Yeah. At what point did it come across your radar that this was something special in terms of the impact that it that it went on to have because obviously it was a, it was a slow build and you know record distributors didn't want to carry it and hair metal was dominating the airwaves and you know when did you start to get a sense that wow people are you know this record's growing and this band is growing um you know i have to be honest with you ryan i i, I was so involved with my career at that time it was like the guys came in we did a record they left. Um, I did go see them a couple of times when they came back into the area to perform with, I think they were opening for Raven. Maybe? Yeah. The kill them all for one tour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, about it. I wish I had something more interesting or exciting to say that was about it. And then I didn't really, I went on to do, um, you know, several other records for Johnny Z at that point. He kind of had made, that studio, his base for his other bands, and I don't remember the names of them all, but there was several um, that came in and, um, you know, kind of got involved with uh, doing all that. And um, and then a couple years later, I moved to uh, the New York City area and um, got involved with a studio called Bear Tracks Recording and really got into a whole different realm of music i worked with lou graham and ace freely and david clayton thomas yaney those oh yeah you, wor you worked on the uh freely's comet record right yeah yeah and so i kind of um and then you know johnny was still kind of involved because he was involved with ace's band obviously and had come into the studio and the last i remember him saying at one point in time is you know we're probably going to do another at some point in time we'd like you to do another record with metallica and that was we never talked about it again. And then they went on to work with like Bob Rock and all these, you know, yeah. these really big time um, producers that I knew they were never going to come back to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they did the, and they did those next few in Denmark. They went back to, uh -huh. you know, okay. the largest homeland. You know, I actually uh, did a, a little bit of homework on some of your credits. And yeah, I saw Lou Graham from Foreigner in there. And um, I remember seeing the Fraley's comment. I've, I've gotten to interview Ace a couple times over the years. He's always mm. funny yes. <laughs> and fun. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, some of the thrash bands, Snow White. I Actually, you may already know this. You may not, but uh, I have on my desk, I literally just got it in the mail yesterday, the new issue of Decibel Magazine. It's uh, easily the best metal magazine out there, and they okay. do a, a Hall of Fame every month where they take a classic metal record and they interview – you know, everyone who performed on it uh -huh. and, uh, you know, and justice for all was in there and Slayer rain and blood. And, uh, this month, the hall of fame entry is fistful of metal. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, congrats. <laughs> yeah. There's another one. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I mean, you know, yeah, that's, 
you know, they call them the big four thrash, and that's that's literally you were involved in half of the big yeah. four's debuts. That's pretty well, awesome. Well, they were they were another great bunch of guys who whose equipment didn't work, and uh, <laughs> we, we did the same thing with them. Of course, we recorded them at Pyramid Recording in Ithaca, New York, which was another studio that I was working out of along with the one in Rochester. And, um, and, uh, that was, that was quite, a the producer, this Carl Kennedy, the drummer from the rods, um, had asked me to do the record with him. And that's sort of how that all got, got started. About three years ago now, uh, Metallica reissued kill them all in a big collector's box. You know, they own all their, yeah. ma- all their masters now and they're reissuing every record one by one. They actually sent me a copy. I was that was my next food. question. <laughs> I hope they gave you one. <laughs> yeah, they did. They were very. They've been really. Yes, they they sent me a nice copy. That's correct. That's awesome. What what, what did you think cracking that open and going through oh, all I that stuff? Oh, I thought it was pretty amazing. Uh, even my wife was like, "Wow, that's you know that's that's pretty nice." I mean, all the all the stuff they included and the different recordings and it's all on LP. I mean, it was it was a nicely done. I thought it was really. Um, Really nicely done. I was impressed with it. Yeah, I've, I've loved uh, each of those that they've done thus far. I mean, it's really a, a treasure trove for super fans to take a deep dive into. Yeah, all I don't sorts know of... in charge of all, all that, but whoever did it did a really nice nice job. I would guess that Lars probably oversees it all. Right. Right. <laughs> I know that he's the uh, the archivist in the band. He's the guy that's got the the uh, you know figurative or literal vault full of right. fl- flyers and tour programs and itineraries and all that sort of stuff. I know you mentioned this, but yeah, you did uh, several records with the Rods back in the day. And then where did things kind of head for you, you know, after that? Like, uh, you know, as you said, you went into Lou Graham and Ace and all that stuff. And then what are you doing these days? Well, um, these days I'm, I own my own company, uh, it's called Gazowski Swiss Audio Systems. We build um, monitor studio loudspeakers for producers, engineers, and recording artists um, in the film broadcast industries and uh, pretty much all over the world. And that's what I've focused on since really probably um, night. Let's see, when when would I did I start that? Probably. Uh, 2010, 2011, I formed that company mm-hmm. um, with two other uh, industry people, Mick Kozowski and, and Larry Swist. Um, and that's what, that's what I do. I, I make sure that that business stays uh, afloat. And um, we've just expanded our product line from one uh, model to four. And uh, we've got products all over the world, except in uh, Russia is the only uh, place we don't have our products at this point in time, but we're trying. And that kind of takes um, most of my my efforts, to tell you the truth. Uh, I got married uh, back in 1992. We don't have any kids, but I've got a wife and a household and all that goes with that. And that's really... Kind of sounds kind of boring, but that's <laughs> no way. It sounds excellent, and I'll be, and I'll be sure to uh, include some links to your company in the uh, in the oh, show that'd notes. Be great. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, yeah. That that was a real. Um, I mean, kind of a, probably a natural outgrowth of what I was doing. You know, once I got married, I didn't really want to spend too much more time in the recording studio. I have to be honest with you. I started to think there was maybe a life outside of uh, of <laughs> yeah. the studio since up to that point. 
I had really immersed myself in that and pretty much only that. And yeah. um, so that's what changed for me. And uh, I'm glad I did it, uh, to tell you the truth. Um, and, uh, you know, I went on to manage a couple other studios, Sound on Sound Recording in New York, Legacy Recording in New York. I mean, they were all pretty big New York studios at the time. There's, they're not in existence any longer because, as you know, the recording scene in New York City kind of dried up. Yeah, how the recording scene everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, everyone's making their record on a laptop in their, know. you know, bass know. player's living room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I have a, I have a semi-funny story for you. Uh, you know, I know you worked uh, with the band Snow White. Yeah. So I was, uh, gosh, I guess it's been ten, almost fifteen years ago. But I was speaking on a panel once at a uh, music industry conference in Indianapolis, uh, which I, was actually my hometown, but I didn't, I've lived in California for the last 20 years. But, uh, but anyway, I was back there and I was on this panel and, uh, you know, it was all, it was me and four or five other people that worked specifically in sort of the metal area of the business. And we're talking mm -hmm. about the future of metal and this and that. And I got on some tangent about how, you know, the thrash movement in the eighties was so exciting and major labels got interested and, all of a sudden all these bands are getting signed and it was really great and really healthy, but then it becomes too much and there's an overabundance of bands and let, you know, it's more quantity than quality and everybody's getting right. a major deal. And just off the top of my head, I said, you know, all of a sudden bands like Snow White are getting signed to major labels. Right. And uh, after the panel is over and, you know, people are coming and talking to us and, you know, kids are giving me their demo and things like that. <laughs> this uh larger gentleman <laughs> uh approaches me and says hey my name's ian i was in snow white <laughs> oh my god i was like uh yeah what are, the, what are the chances in that room of like 50 people that one of them was going to be the guitarist of did snow they, white but then he just know, but they, then he just started laughing and he was like hey man i totally agree with you <laughs> And uh, and then we had like a really awesome, pleasant conversation for ten or fifteen minutes. Right. But it's just like, what what are the chances, man? Like, did yeah. I just did I just conjure this guy by his yeah. Beetlejuice? <laughs> did they do anything else beyond, besides that album? Um, I know that they. Uh, yeah, I know they did a couple records. I know okay. that at, at one point they were on Roadrunner. Um, ah, okay. At one point they were on Enigma. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah, they um. They were kicking around for a bit, and they were they were a cool band. It was just they literally just came to mind because I was like thinking of kind of that middle tier of thrash metal bands that right. started getting picked up by bigger labels, and where it was like, okay, this is this is gonna you know the bubble's gonna burst here for everyone. Well, Johnny certainly had a lot of them. I mean, there was that band TT Quick. Yeah, I don't know if you remember them? Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he had he definitely had a lot of them. And, here and, today, uh, gone tomorrow. Yeah, you know, I'm actually in touch with Johnny. I need to uh, have him on the podcast. He's still oh, on my on my list. Yeah. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I, I can't thank you enough, and it, it certainly doesn't hurt that you're uh, well spoken and polite. Not always the case <laughs> in the world of rock. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, I really do. It uh, brought back some uh, uh, some good memories. Yeah. And I would say as a, as a last question to sort of wrap up, what do you think it is 
about Kill 'Em All where it still holds up today. You know, I mean, there's you know they're still playing Seek and Destroy and Whiplash and uh, Hit the Lights and you know all these songs are still part of their live set as they're out there one of the biggest rock bands in the world, if not the biggest. Um, and then that record is still, it still sells every week, even at a time when records aren't selling. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I it's really um, interesting and I really can't put my finger on it. Um, I guess, uh, you know, it captured a time and a place um, well enough to, um, you know, keep it alive for, for people in the future. And, uh, but certainly, I mean, the guys were certainly, uh, very emphatic about what they were doing. So, you know, maybe that was almost impossible not to capture, Hmm. um, you know, because the recording itself is not very, very good. You know, the, the actual recording quality, um, but the playing, um, was, I guess something uh, different and whatever we did, uh, to capture that translated well enough through vinyl for people to get, get the idea. I mean, you know, they always say that it's better to see a band live than on record. And that's even the case with Metallica, but maybe for some reason that recording captured something um, that was part of what they do live. I don't know. I think but, it really uh, did. I think it energy yeah, I think it intensity just, and right. yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of important, uh, seminal, influential records and multiple genres fit that same description of, you know, well, it wasn't the best studio. We didn't have the, uh, enough time or the right gear or enough money, but it just, you know, the magic's in the grooves. It just, right. everything came together and right place, right time, lightning in a bottle. And everyone who was involved ended up making something great, uh, unbeknownst to Yes. <laughs> themselves at the time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, true. and then think about how many records that had every advantage and everything going for it that no mm. one remembers. Uh, you know. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, I, I believe it or not, I still have I still have certain people that I meet uh, that still say to me, you know, kill them all when they find out I'm I was involved with the record that it you know was important to them and um so I guess that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah, so absolutely, it's good. It's fantastic. I, I appreciate you uh, thinking of me and, and giving me a call, Ryan. I really do. It's great. Yeah, likewise. That does it for this episode of Speak and Destroy. You can check out the show notes to learn more about Chris and his company. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. You can also find me on Facebook at Ryan J. Downey. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downing.